Radio Catskill, WJFF. This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, it's all about Mars this week on Keith Hubbard's Star Talk Report. Audubon Society members Pat and Jim Sanders are for the birds, and they report on winter sparrows for the Northeast. In her segment Now You Know, Stephanie Phillips finalizes her conversation with animal activist Richie Cheeger, who loves his backyard chickens in Sullivan County. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Nora Rahm. The death toll continues to climb in Turkey and Syria from Monday's powerful earthquake. Officials now say more than 25,000 people have died. Tens of thousands were injured and millions of people lost their homes. NPR's Jason Bobian is in Turkey and says the devastation is extensive. Here in the center of Maresh, this major city in central Turkey, there isn't a single building that is still inhabitable. The ones that are still standing have massive cracks in them. Workers now are digging through these mountains of rubble, looking for bodies, attempting to extract the dead. NPR's Jason Bovian. Russia is defending Friday's wave of rocket attacks against Ukraine, saying its missiles only struck military-related targets. From Moscow, NPR's Charles Maines has more. Defense Ministry spokesman Igor Konashenkov said Russian missiles and drones successfully destroyed energy and transport systems critically important to what he called Ukraine's military-industrial complex. As a result of the airstrikes, Konashenkov said power had been severed at Ukrainian military facilities and railway shipments of Western arms had been blocked from reaching the front lines. Kiev and its Western allies have called Russia's repeated targeting of civilian infrastructure in the depths of winter war crimes that have killed scores. In the latest Barrage Friday, Russia unleashed more than 100 missiles and drones in what Ukraine's military described as a massive attack that caused power outages in several regions across the country. Charles Maines, NPR News, Moscow. A U.S. military fighter jet shot down an unknown object flying off the remote northern coast of Alaska yesterday. Officials say it was about the size of a small car, smaller than the Chinese surveillance balloon, downed off the South Carolina coast last weekend. Transgender youth, their parents, and advocates packed a raucous public hearing in Florida yesterday. They urged the state's medical boards to eliminate new rules that will ban gender-affirming medical care for trans youth. NPR's Melissa Block reports from Tallahassee. Florida's Board of Osteopathic Medicine voted to strip an exception for trans youth to get gender-affirming care as part of a clinical trial. Earlier, the doctors heard impassioned pleas to reconsider. Here's 18-year-old Sebastian Cook. Gender-affirming health care saved my life. Okay, genuinely, it saved my life. Twelve-year-old Lola Smith spoke for her trans and non-binary peers. On behalf of those scared kids, I will beg you, please, 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 let us exist. And 25-year-old Lindsay Sparrow gave himself his weekly hormone injection in front of the doctors. As Florida's medical boards adjourned, the audience shouted, shame, and we will not be silenced. We will not be 
Melissa Block, NPR News, Tallahassee. You're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Pat and Jim Sanders are for the birds and report on winter sparrows for the Northeast. Stephanie Phillips finalizes her conversation with animal activist Richie Cheeger. In her segment, Now You Know, we'll hear about buying chickens to raise in your backyard. But first, here is Keith Hubbard with this week's Star Talk report about Mars. Thank you for joining us on Radio Catskill for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. Country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. Mars can be found in the southeastern sky this week. Look above the red stars Betelgeuse and Aldebaran to find the red planet. The red hue of Mars is due to the oxidation of iron-rich minerals in the Martian soil. This is the same process that causes metals to rust here on Earth. Mars has two moons that are thought to be asteroids that ventured too close to Mars and were captured by Mars's gravity. Mars' moons, Phobos and Deimos, were both discovered in 1877 by the American astronomer Asaph Hall. Mars orbits the Sun once every 1.88 Earth years, and its seasons are twice as long as those on Earth. Mars is half the size of Earth, but its small stature does not keep it from having some of the largest and longest features in the solar system. Mount Olympus Mons is the largest mountain in the solar system. At 15 miles high, it is three times as tall as Mount Everest. At 311 miles in diameter at its base, it would encompass the state of Washington. Mars also has the longest canyon system in the solar system called the Valles Marineris. The Valles Marineris is 2,500 miles long and at its deepest is four times deeper than the Grand Canyon. If placed in the United States, the Valles Marineris would stretch from New York City to Los Angeles. Use Betelgeuse and Aldebaran to be your guide to spotting Mars in the southeastern sky this week. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. Good morning. This is Jim and Pat Sanders for Farm and Country, and our program is for the birds. Among the birds that we count at our feeders each week, there are several types of sparrows whose busy hopping and scratching about we really enjoy watching. These are the American tree sparrow, the fox sparrow, and the white-throated sparrow. My favorite winter sparrows are the fox sparrows. They're a bright foxy red color and look stunningly handsome when seen through binoculars. We only see them as winter visitors because they breed further north in summer in coniferous forests. Fox sparrows are generally rust brown above with a mix of rust and gray on the head and heavy brownish splotches on the flanks and the center of the chest. 
They're among the largest and hardiest of sparrows and are sturdy, weighing about one and three-quarter ounces. We see them under our feeders and nearby bushes, using their strong legs to kick away leaf litter in search of insects and seeds. Fox sparrows forage on the ground, characteristically double scratching in the soil or snow, making a little forward jump and then scratching back with both feet at once. And next we have the American tree sparrow, our most commonly seen winter sparrow aside from the junco, which incidentally is also a sparrow. American tree sparrows were misleadingly named by European settlers who were reminded of Eurasian tree sparrows back home. But actually, American tree sparrows are ground birds. They forage on the ground, nest on the ground, and breed primarily in scrubby areas. They are small, round-headed birds that often fluff out their feathers, making their plump bodies look even chubbier. Among sparrows, they have fairly small bills and long, thin tails. These sparrows have a rusty cap and a rusty, not black, eyeline on a gray head, a streaked brown back, and a smooth gray or buff breast in both male and female. An easy way to identify them is by spotting the dark smudge or tie tack in the center of their plain, unstreaked breast. Seeds, insects, and berries make up most of the American tree sparrow's diet. In winter, they forage industriously in small flocks. They need to take in about 30% of their body weight in food and a similar percentage in water each day. A full day's fasting is usually a death sentence. Their body temperature drops and they lose nearly a fifth of their weight in that short time. American tree sparrows scratch the ground for dried seeds and hop up at bent over weeds or along low branches, gathering catkins or berries. Inventive in their foraging, they have been seen beating grass seed heads sticking up out of the snow with their wings to release seeds they can pluck from the ground. These hardy birds often continue foraging undaunted as winter blizzards roll in. You might see them perched on low branches or atop goldenrod or other plant stalks. The third sparrow of winter that we love to see is the white-throated sparrow, which happens to be my favorite. It's brown above and gray below with striking crisp facial markings. The black and white striped head is augmented by its identifying bright white throat bordered by a black whisker called a malar stripe and with yellow lores between the eye and the bill, which is gray. During winter, white-throated sparrows readily visit bird feeders for millet and black oil sunflower seeds, and they sing their easily recognizable, distinctive songs very frequently. Listen to the pretty, wavering whistle that sounds a bit like Old Sam Peabody Peabody. We hope that you'll keep an eye out for some of these energetic winter sparrows who add color and activity in our sometimes bleak winter. If you'd like to hear this or any other For the Birds segment, you can find them on our Northeast Pennsylvania Audubon Society website at www.nepaaudubon.org. That's N-E-P-A-A-U-D-U-B-O-N. This has been Pat and Jim Sanders for Farm and Country, and we're For the Birds.
Good morning. This is Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. Today we'll talk about one of my favorite animals, chickens. Our chicken expert is Richie Cheeker. Richie wears many hats. Richie taught 8th and 9th grade in Brooklyn for eight years before he came to Fallsburg and then he was an elementary school teacher in Fallsburg for years. He also taught Sunday school at Temple Shalom. He advocates for elephants and exotic birds and also teaches Yiddish. But today's about chickens. Richie, now that you're retired, what do you do to keep yourself busy? I do animal rescue, a lot of that. I find homes for dogs, for cats, for birds, for chickens. We found a home for an ox. I found a home for a cow. Everything that needs a home, people call me all the time, and I do my best to find homes. And I also study about elephants, and I give lectures on the plight of the elephant and then what's happening to them today in captivity and in the wild. So you moved from a degree in theater to, <laughs> to uh, elephants. Okay, let's focus on chickens. Where do you get your chickens if you're not breeding them yourself? Various places. I've gotten, in the past, I've bought chicks from commercial hatcheries where they come in the mail, and I wouldn't argue... If you say that's a cruel thing, I have gotten deliveries where there was a dead chick. Most of them are fine, but I don't do it anymore. It's kind of a big industry now that a lot of people have backyard chickens. And there are some good hatcheries that take very careful care. But again, it's, it's an iffy subject. Most of them, like I said, mine have been fine. I have gotten them like that. I do go to poultry shows, and I've bought birds at poultry shows. I've gone to poultry auctions and bought birds at poultry auctions. I have a friend who I call my chicken guru. He knows everything about chickens. His name's Craig Russell. He lives in Pennsylvania. He really knows everything about chickens. And... He will every once in a while call me and say, hey, I know of a group of, let's say, New Hampshire's or some other breed that I really love. And if I have the place and I can kind of incorporate them into the flock, I'll tell them, bring them, bring them. I love them. I just wanted a silky and I found it on Craigslist. Oh, yeah, I think you can find anything there. Just uh, be careful. Make sure it's healthy. That's my big fear. To make sure they're healthy, that's all. Yeah. Right. You also want to make sure they're inoculated against Marek's disease. Uh, I don't know yes, what you do Yes, that's a about. very good idea. Yeah. When you get them from the hatcheries, I think it's an extra, it was when I did it, it was an extra 10 cents to have each chick inoculated against Marek's. Yeah. Yeah, there are diseases chickens get, and it's cost me a fortune at the vet with them, and often I'm the only one sitting there with a chicken. Well, we had a chicken with cataract. <laughs> that we took up to Cornell University and they said nobody ever had done that before and she had a cataract operation. Wow. Yeah. What do you use for nesting material if you want to encourage your... Uh, Sometimes straw. Sometimes just the, the wood shavings. I'll put the wood shavings in the nests. Just something that could stay dry and give them the idea that they're making a nest. They don't make their own. They're very lazy that way. They're not meant to. 
I've had hens that took a nest in the woods. It's just like any wild turkey or any other of that type of bird. I once had a hen, I thought she was dead. She came out of the woods with 18 chicks. <laughs> yeah, they just keep laying. And yeah, until they feel that they've laid their clutch, and then they sit on them. If you have several hens, I've found that they'll continue to lay eggs in the same place, so they're mm -hmm. asynchronous. How does that work out for the hen? Can she take care of them? Do they hatch asynchronously? Oh, you're talking about having chicks. Chicks, right. No, 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 no. What happens is if they find their own spot, like this hen that I was talking about who came back with the 18 chicks, if you have a hen who goes broody, and if you've been taking eggs, what you would do is give her the eggs you collected from that day. Because that way, all the chicks hatch on the same day, and that's the natural way for chickens. I think it's galliform birds, which are chickens. They hatch all their eggs on the same day, which meant she could have laid a dozen eggs, and you've taken them. But if you hadn't taken them, she would be sitting on her dozen. But if you did take them, then put her on what you got from that day. But she'll treat them there like they're her own. She'll hatch them. Yeah, what, one of my problems that I find is that I'll have a broody hen and there's access to the hen house by the other hens. So the other hens will come in and lay their eggs while she's right sitting. Right while she's sitting. sitting. Oh. So then they're asynchronous. So what I do right. is I take a crayon marker and I, every day I write down the eggs that, the day that the eggs were hatched and I take away the new ones every, right. every that's, time. Right, that's what I've done that. Where she goes broody, I give her her eggs, and I, I mark each egg I gave her that day. So if a hen goes in and lays an egg, just like you're talking about, I take away that egg because it's only going to just develop until she stops sitting on it. Right, and she will stop sitting. Oh, she one such chicks hatch, right. Yeah, one such chicks hatch. Yeah, one of the funny things away. that happens is I have my chickens laying in dish pans. They're kind of hanging. I've got suspended dish pans. So... If the hen is broody and she's sitting on eggs and she looks over the edge and there are eggs in the next dishpan, she'll move. They haven't got the brains to stay to be consistent oh, and sit oh, on. Oh. So I have to be very careful when a hen is broody not to let her see other eggs or she'll move right over to those and then yeah, she'll sit on those yeah. a while and she'll look over and say, oh, there are eggs Was next that door. there too? <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't work out well for the chicks. Um, I've moved them. If they get broody, I've moved them into a separate place, put her eggs there, lock her in there, and after a while, she'll make sure she stays. Even if you have to put her back, keep an eye on her the first couple of days, she'll stay there. And I've done it in places where the other hens do not have access, because otherwise it's exactly what you said. Yeah, They're, they're not that bright. Well, <laughs> I don't know if they think that. <laughs> there are other birds. I mean, there are parrots, raptors, where the babies hatch. This one hatched on Tuesday. This one hatched on Thursday. This one hatched on Saturday. But that's a whole different lifestyle. <laughs> what do you feed the chicks? I get medicated chick feed. And as awful as that sounds, that 
keeps them from getting coccidiosis. I prefer natural. I've done it, and it doesn't work as well. It doesn't. So I give them medicated chick feed. I keep the, the hen and the chicks separated for a few weeks so they get a, the start with the medication, and then I let them out with all the other chickens. Richie, can you tell the male chicks from the female chicks, or how old do they have to be before you can tell? There are breeds, actually, and crossbreeds, which are, it's called autosexing, where the males look different from the females. There's a very popular, it's not a breed, it's a hybrid, it's a cross, I think, it's a Rhode Island red or New Hampshire rooster on a white rock hen, or the other way around, I don't remember, and the chicks are born where the males, I think, are white and the females are brown. And so you can tell. There's another sex link. It's a cross between also a Rhode Island red or a New Hampshire red male and barred rock females. And those chicks are born with the, the pullet chicks, the females, are have a completely black head. And the cockerel chicks have a white spot on the head. So you can sex them like that. But most of the purebreds, most of the breeds, you can't until they start to develop secondary sex characteristics, which could be six weeks, eight weeks, depends on the chick. Leghorns are the smaller breeds develop a little bit earlier. The, the bigger breeds are a little later. But you'll see that the cockerel chicks will start to develop a comb, a redder comb, and then you realize it's a cockerel, it's a male. The females don't do that as fast. So, yeah, I can tell by, it takes a while, but yeah, when they does. grow, then I'm sure. Oh, then. <laughs> <laughs> when they grow or lay an egg, you know for sure, yeah. No, but you can tell. It takes a few weeks, but you can tell the difference. Yeah. Yeah, and the other way that I can tell is when they start to fight each other. Then I know they're roosters. Uh, I've they seen pullets. Off. I've seen pullets fight, but yeah, yeah. For the most part, I think if they become bellicose, they're usually males. Yeah. So you get eggs from your chickens. Are they different from the ones you buy in the store? Much, much different. Because remember, the ones you buy in the store, unless it says free range or whatever. And then again, you don't know how much to believe of what they call free range. My chickens eat everything. I cook for them. <laughs> I make them breakfast. I make them spaghetti with chopped fresh kale every morning. And oh, God, they devour that. Besides, they get their feed, their laying feed, and their scratch grains. And they like black oil sunflower seeds. But they're out. They're eat, eating grass, bugs, everything. When they talk about vegetarian chicken feed, I don't I don't know that kind of strikes me strangely only because chickens eat bugs and worms and and everything they they suck in the spaghetti like it was worms so what the chicken eats really makes a difference in the quality of the egg the taste of the egg you'll find that the yolks from my chickens are much more orange than the yolks of the chickens that you're going to get from the factory farms. Because remember, they lay there with a ribbon of chemical feed going along, and that's all they eat. So it's a much better egg. The whites are thicker, too. They beat, beat up much better if you're trying to get beaten egg whites. Right. Stiff, stiff beaten egg whites. Right, yeah. 
And your chickens are very lucky. My chickens just get leftovers. Oh. <laughs> and they get that too, mine. <laughs> I, I love them. I can't help it. Suppose you have eggs, but you don't have a broody hen. Can you put them with a light bulb, or is there some way to get them to hatch? Or if they... Oh, oh, you mean if you have fertile eggs? Yeah, incubator. You can get yourself a little incubator. They're very cheap. And just make sure you, you follow the instructions. you got to turn the eggs like three times a day, and then you have to raise the chicks. But yeah, you can have chick raised in an incubator. Yeah. Now the hens... Have... I've done it in school. Yeah. Yeah, the hens are very good at turning the eggs. It's oh, yeah, they know to what to them. do. Yeah. yeah, they know what to do. And silkies, I think, go broody. There are certain breeds that tend to go broody more than others. And I love the heritage breeds. Today, you find mostly hybrids that are egg crosses or meat crosses that people raise because it's fast. Everything is fast. I like the old heritage breeds. It took hundreds of years. The breeds started to be breeds in the 1800. Queen Victoria had Brahmas like I have, dark Brahmas, light Brahmas. She was very big. There was a thing called hen fever, and it was in the 1800. And most of the breeds that are Around today, the heritage breeds, the old breeds, were developed in the late 1800s and early 1900s. New Hampshire's were a young breed. They were developed in 1935. New Hampshire's were accepted. Yeah. There's a thing called the APA, the American Poultry Association, and they publish a standard of perfection where they have every breed of chicken and what it should look like. Every it's interesting. Breed, right. right, right, yeah. And, and I it's, like it's the crosses because you, oh, you do know like the crosses. Get. Okay. I mean, I, Terrific. I let them just breed. Yeah. I have to ask, although I think I know the answer. Yes, do you me. ever do you ever eat the chickens? Mine? Oh, I, no, I don't need any chickens. <laughs> I did when I was a kid. I grew up with it. No, I can't do it. Mine live out their lives. They just do. And there's people who do it, raise their own for meat. I couldn't look at a living thing and then know that it's being killed. Blech. I can't do it. I haven't eaten meat in a long time. Yeah, and my wife's been a vegetarian for 50 years more. Yeah. Yeah. So, Richie, why do you keep chickens? I love them. <laughs> <laughs> I had a chicken when I lived in Brooklyn, when I moved out of my parents' house, which is where I met my wife. I had an apartment on the top floor of an apartment house. I had two dogs. I had several cats that I had to rescue. And I had a chicken who I rescued on a farm. She was crippled. And I worked with her, took her to vets. Remember, this was upstate, and I came back to Brooklyn after the summer. And I kept her in my room, and my mother would scream every day, get it out of here, I don't want a chicken in the house. Well, I kept it clean. And then when I moved, she had her own room. <laughs> she, in an apartment, I love chickens. I have always loved chickens. I, I just do. I think there's something special about them. They're, I don't know, I love, I love them. But to me, they're all pets. So now you know how to acquire some chickens for your backyard. Richie Cheeger, longtime Sullivan County resident, has been our chicken expert. Send your ideas for future topics and experts to me at stephanie at wjffradio.org. 
This is from Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country. Hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by Pat and Jim Sanders from the Northeast Audubon Society and Radio Catskill volunteers Keith Hubbard and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guest, Richie Cheeger, for his compassion and enthusiasm raising pet chickens in Sullivan County. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening local to Farm and Country and supporting Radio Catskill, public radio for the Catskills and Northeast Pennsylvania. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions providing tools for action and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org Hello. If you're a book reader, and even if you're not, I'd like to invite you to join me, Aaron Hicklin, every Sunday at noon for Shelf Life on WJFF Radio Catskill, a show about books and the people who love them. Each episode, my guest picks two of their favorite books. I read them, and then we get together to talk about them. That's Shelf Life on Sundays at noon on WJFF Radio Catskill. I have no accurate knowledge of my...